morning. Welcome to the Firehouse. Good morning. Hey. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, we're, we're just glad to have you guys here. We've been going through a series right now through the Gospel of Mark. And so today we're going to try to get to the end of Mark chapter 3. Um, so I do I just want to follow up Jeff's announcement about the softball teams. Um, if you didn't pick it up at all, which you, you know you probably did, Jeff, a little bit competitive. Um, <laughs> I uh, I just want to play softball to have fun, you know, and uh, winning just happens to be really fun, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm going to try to be on Jeff's team if I can, uh, if I qualify, so, uh, but no, Jeff once won a, an award in our leadership community, and he was uh, voted most likely to win any competition the firehouse ever had, so uh, he won the spelling bee one year, he won, uh, you know, athletic things, he's, uh, he's fairly competitive, but... Uh, um, winning is fun, you know. So, uh, we'll, uh, you know, if you do, we're going to evaluate see how many people we have for these teams. The softball team should be really fun. Um, if you need help with, uh, you know, money, we can look into scholarships um, based on your skills and stuff like that. Uh, we can look into scholarships, but no, I'm just joking. Um, should be fun. We've never had a team like that before, and uh, we'll see what happens here. Um, but anyways, uh, make sure you get that sign-up list so we can point you in the right direction. We've got some friends that have been in this league before. It's over by Sloan's Lake there, so we're uh, not too far from here, but it could be a lot of fun. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we will jump into Mark chapter 3. We also just have to wrap up a little bit from Mark chapter 2. I really am trying to get to the end of chapter 3 today because Brad is starting chapter 4 next week, so he kind of wants me to get there so, uh, so he doesn't have to adjust. But uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this morning. God, it's just a blessing to come together and be with your people, be in your presence, to worship you together. And God, we just ask as we uh, open up the scriptures today, as we look at Mark chapter 3, I just pray you would open up our, our minds and our hearts to understand you better, to understand maybe some changes you want to make in our lives. God, help us to hear your voice. Help us to respond and obey whatever we hear from you this morning. But God, we just ask that you would impact our hearts, soften our hearts, make them more like yours today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So, Mark, um, let's see. I think it's on page 992. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're just going to read the end of uh, the end of chapter two, and then the first section actually overlaps. There's two things that kind of overlap from chapter two into chapter three. So, we're going to read from Mark 2:23 into Mark 3:6. So, if you've got a Bible, you can read along. Otherwise, just listen in here. Page 992, I don't know what I said before. That doesn't sound familiar, but um, here we go. Lord of the Sabbath is what this uh, passage is entitled. One Sabbath, Jesus was growing through the grain fields, and as, as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, What is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That's an interesting passage here. Wow. Um, you know, there's a, I think there's a number of points that we could draw out. We'll just, uh, there's a few of them that um, we'll hit on here. They're kind of interrelated here, things related to the Sabbath. But um, let's see. How do we put it here? I mean, I've got a, a few points. I've got a few stories. Uh, they might not be in order here. You don't want to miss the heart of the Sabbath. Watch out. This is the one I want to start with here. This uh, point here that says, Beware. Beware of straining for gnats while swallowing a camel. You know, at one point when Jesus was correcting the Pharisees, He told them, Hey, look, these guys, they strain for gnats and they swallow camels. And if you know, both of those critters are uh, listed as unclean in the Old Testament. Gnats qualify as crawly things or crawling, swarming crawling things. I think is how it's listed in the Old Testament. And camels qualify as something that has a certain type of hoof and doesn't chew the cut or whatever. But camels are well qualified. Um, but, you know, in, in some ways what these Pharisees would do, and this is a great example of it, is they, they'd look for these little gnats and they'd make sure, oh, we just want to make sure someone's not going to swallow a gnat, you know, because it's such a big deal. And then they'd go and they would swallow a camel themselves. In this, we see the obvious right off the bat. They were trying to see, boy, was shredding grain in your hands and pop it in your mouth because you're hungry. Is that really breaking the law on the Sabbath? You know, and the, the reality is, if you look back in the law, that wasn't specifically listed against the law. In general, the law said you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Now, they had tons of intricate uh, man-made rules on what work was supposed to look like. I'm going to read to you some of those here from current uh, Orthodox Jewish laws. But um, they really got carried away. But then you see the end of the passage, and what did they want to do? They went off to plot how to kill Jesus. I mean, that is, uh, you know, sometimes I just think we look at the Pharisees and I just go, that is disgusting. That makes me want to vomit when I think of that. But at the same time, I, I wonder if the Lord didn't put this, them in the Scriptures as an example to, to me and to you because it's so easy to go down that road of getting nitpicky with other people and yet swallowing camels, you know. Um, so let's just look at some of these things here. Um, let's see, so... You know, Jesus, uh, he mentions a few things. He talks about David and his example. And I think he draws out something interesting here. I love this phrase where he talks about David and he says, He and his companions were hungry and in need. Now, why do you think the disciples were eating grain in the fields? To get the Pharisees fired up, right? I mean, probably they knew it would set them off. You know, no, probably not. They were probably actually hungry. And I don't know if, you know, squishing grain in your hands and, and popping it in your mouth is really going to fill your stomach. But, uh, you know, but that's what they were doing. But the Pharisees were watching and, and they're seeing these guys that are apparently hungry. And what did they come away with? 
Jesus, these guys are breaking the law. You guys are breaking the law. You know, what would have been a fitting response for someone who really had God's heart? What would you and I have done? Of course we would have done. We would have offered them some donuts, some bagels, from the grain that has been ground already and made into bagels. We would have given them bagels, right? Probably, maybe, I hope. But these guys were so concerned, they were so nitpicky on the disciples that they completely missed the fact that they were hungry, they were in need. They, they missed it altogether, you know. And, and you can go into, you know, Jesus makes the case why it wasn't breaking the law at all. You know, do not work. Um, I looked up some things here, you know. I looked up a source for, um, you know, this is a very, very, uh, how would you say, trustworthy source for Jewish Orthodox law. You know, I looked up on Wikipedia some of this stuff here. So, uh, but, uh, you know, Wikipedia talks about some of this. And, uh, you know, they just have some entries here that, you know, you're allowed to kind of adjust your own information on there, right? But um, one of the things it was talking about related to um, Jewish law, it prohibits any type of work, you know. But they have, um, currently, there's, there's some 39 categories that how to classify the type of work that you might be doing, you know. Um, a few examples here. Here are uh, plowing earth, sowing, reaping, binding cheese, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating, uh, let's see, separating two hides, marking hides, cutting hides, uh, goes on, different things, extinguishing a fire. Building a fire, kindling a fire, um, finishing touch on an object, transporting an object between private domain and public domain. And the list goes on and on. There's 39 things that qualify today as work that you should not do. Um, it gets into some interesting things here about like electricity. You know, if you use certain electrical devices, if you flip a switch, there are some that make the case that the sparks related to flipping a switch, uh, it, it's a violation under igniting a fire. And so you got to watch that. There's, there's the elevators that they have today that are Sabbath elevators that are designed to hit every floor along the way so that you don't do the work of pushing a button because you would obviously be breaking the law. It goes on into different things. There's apparently some Sabbath-friendly vehicles out there that I don't know exactly how that works, but, you know, it's probably a good market to sell those in Israel there, I think. Um, but, uh, but anyways, the point is, boy, there's so many of these intricate, detailed, man-made laws that are all just coming off of the idea that, hey, by the way, you're not supposed to do your normal work on this day so that you can rest. And instead of being this benefit that God originally designed, you know, Jesus says it right here, hey, the Sabbath was, was made for your benefit. So you can, like, take a day off. You can take a breather. It wasn't made to be this huge, gigantic burden of people watching over your shoulders for all these little itty-bitty things that you could do. And we have to be careful of that ourselves, you know. Um, be careful of straining the gnat. Often we're straining the gnat in other people's lives just like they were, and yet swallowing a big whomping camel in our, our lives. And we've got to watch out for that. You know, one of the ways that I've seen that work is, um, and you see it here as well. You know, um, the second scene here just talks about how they were watching Jesus. He's in the synagogue. There's this guy with this hand that's all shriveled up. And they're watching Jesus. You know, there he goes. I bet you he's going to do it. It's the Sabbath. Healing is work for somebody. Um, it's work for God, I guess. And we're going to catch him this time. And they were trying to make a case. You know, the phrasing is like this. It says, they watched him closely to see if he would heal. Before that, it even says, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse. 
These Pharisees were, were looking to make a case against Jesus. And they're watching him closely. And what was the case? You know, and Jesus, he just kind of, he knows what's going on. And he says, okay, get this guy up in front of everyone here. They could see what was about to happen. And he asked them, hey Pharisees, what's better to do? What's lawful to do? Um, to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? To kill or to save life? And what did they say? Nothing. You know, Jesus was calling them right on the money. He's saying, hey, look, we're doing good on the Sabbath. This guy has been probably ashamed of how his arm looks for years, unable to use it, unable to work like other people, and he's here in your synagogue. And let's, let's just you know, bring this to the forefront of the matter here. Uh, what's better to do, help this guy or, or just to leave him how he is without, and, and have no compassion towards him, no you know, just indifference towards his feelings and his needs, and, and Jesus ends up healing him. But we have to watch out again. The error that we can make is um, we can make cases against people. We can look closely at someone's life and we go, I'm watching this person. I'm watching them. And we start to build a case against them. And we add data to it. And before you know it, somehow we come away with a case to accuse the person, to look down on them, maybe to treat them in a certain way because we've been building our case. And I know how this works. I've had this work in my own life. I remember in marriage different times where my wife and I, you know, um, God has brought us through some refining in our marriage. And there were some times when we first came to the firehouse that we, um, you know, we were having some serious conflict. But, but a lot of the conflict revolves around this idea of I could make a great case against my wife and how she sinned. And she can make a great case against me and how we sinned. And we both had a lot of data to back our cases. And then we would sit down with uh, you know, our co-pastor at the time. We're, we're very glad that we were with them, Rick and Neva Whitney. And, and they would sit down and they would hear our cases. And then they would just rule, you know, make a verdict. And they always ruled in favor of me. And No, no you know, usually what they did is hey, they ruled against us because they said, you guys are making cases against each other. here. You're not even in the game. That's not even, you know, that's not even what you're supposed to be thinking about and eventually we realized the cases that we made against each other are accurate each one of us has a flesh and if you're going to sin you've got a certain way you're going to sin and, uh, and your roommate can make a great case for how you sin and, but you know what you can make an even better case for how you sin you know you, you know your flesh you even know your motivations your intentions your internal thoughts better than someone who's guessing at them but, but these guys were making a case and you know what you can't do you can't make a case against someone and be loving and compassionate at the same time, can you? Because it doesn't help your case, you know? I'm trying to make a case. I'm trying to bring these people to the bank. And I can't serve them and bless them along the way because that's just, well, that's not the spirit of making a case. Um, but sometimes we get like that. And I want to ask you right now, we all hate the sin of the Pharisees, but i got a question for you. Are you making a case right now against someone in this room? Someone maybe not in this room. It's easy to make a case against your roommate. You got a case against someone going? A case why you shouldn't show them the love and grace of Jesus Christ? You got a case going against your spouse? Maybe they've given you some good data. You got a case going against a leader in your life? Maybe your small group leader, maybe your pastors. Are you making a case against someone? You know, it might even be accurate. But you know what? When you're making a case against someone, I think Jesus can make a case against you and I, an even bigger case. What's the greatest commandment that Jesus said in all the law? What's the greatest commandment? I'll give you a hint. It does not even start with a thou shalt not. A lot of times we make cases against someone because they're doing something that thou shalt not be doing, you know? Um, but what's the greatest thing? 
Love the Lord your God with all. What's the second greatest commandment? Love. Love your neighbor. Often when we're making a case against someone, it's probably, oh yeah, sure it's wrong to lie. Sure it's wrong to lust. Sure it's wrong to whatever it is the case you might be making. But you know what's an even bigger deal than that? The greatest deal? Loving God and loving people. If you're making a case with someone, you ought to examine yourself and see if, if God has got a bigger case about how you're not loving how you're not loving Him or loving people. And I encourage you, we want to be a church just full of people who drop the cases. And we've got a great case to love, the great commandments, you know, um, and the great commission. And so we just want to make sure we're not uh, making cases against people here because, you know, God's got an even bigger case against us. If you want to make a case against anybody, make one on yourself. Jesus said examine yourself. You know, if you want to make a case, which is not necessarily good New Testament living, but if you're going to do it, might as well make one against yourself. Otherwise, get on with loving people, loving God. These guys completely and totally missed it. And they went on to want to kill Jesus. I mean, it's just like, blows my mind, really? You know, gnats and uh, grain, little pieces of grain or healing. And let's go plot with the Herodians to kill Jesus. You know, they're, they're the same crew that worked uh, with Herod to um, have John the Baptist killed. I mean, maybe they thought... We should team up with these guys. It's interesting. There's, you know, side note, tangent, whatever. Often people will, people will team up for the sake. People who were once enemies will team together to persecute Jesus and his followers. It happened on the, on the, when Jesus was crucified. It said Pontius Pilate and Herod were enemies of one another, but they started poking fun at Jesus and they put a robe on him and they sent him back to the other guy. It said after that they became friends because they were persecuting Jesus. And there's going to be people that will unite to persecute us as we follow Jesus. But let's not make a case against one another here. Let's make a case to love one another. I mean, you know, I just think about, a, maybe you don't have a specific example of someone that you're making a case against. You know what, what I, I noticed here, you know, Jesus is just, he got really angry and he says, um, he looked around at them in anger. It was a righteous anger. It was a God-centered anger. Sometimes we get angry and it's, what? It's a self-centered anger. Someone did something you don't think's right. Something that offended you. You know, I think Jesus had a God-centered anger. I don't know if any of us really err in a God-centered anger over a self-centered anger. But, uh, but anyways, he goes on to say he, he was deeply distressed at their stubborn, stubborn hearts. I think the NAS says something like at, their heart, at the hardness of their hearts. You just, again, examine yourself. If there's someone you're making a case against, I'll bet you have a hard heart, not willing to help, have compassion for them. But, you know, one of the people groups I've been thinking of that, that I go, you know, as Christians, this is some, you know, who I can have a hard heart for sometimes, and, and maybe you can too. It's uh, people standing on the side of the street, you know, a, a panhandler. What, what do you feel towards a panhandler? When's the last time you helped someone like that? You know, I, what is natural to think, what I can easily think is... You know, sometimes they have their lines, you know, like uh, I love the line that says, you know, I need money to get a bus ticket to Montana. And they've been on that corner for like five years and you're just going, I haven't got to Montana yet, have we? No. Um, but, uh, you know, it's easy to go, you're just going to take my money and you go buy drugs with it, right? You're just going to take my money and go buy alcohol that wouldn't honor God. But, but I just wonder if Jesus feels the same way about that person on the corner as you and I do. I think we've got a case against them that will allow us to not think about it, to have a hard heart towards them. And I don't know, it might be something to reevaluate. I know there's a tension there. Maybe they are on drugs. Um, but I just wonder if we're, we're making a case against them. So I, just, I was struck by a situation here this, this Christmas. I was going up to the bank. Um, 
got a branch of our bank that's up on like 120th and Sheridan, First National Bank. They used to have a bank, a branch downtown was much more convenient than 120th from here. But, uh, but anyways, I was heading to the bank, making a turn to go up there, and out of the corner of my eye, I see this guy kind of hop out on the, on the sidewalk there, and, uh, and he had a sign, and I was just watching this little scrambling going on, but this guy pops out of this kind of beat-up car, this girl, maybe junior high age, hops in the front, see the passenger seat that he hopped out of, there's a lady there, an older lady that looked like his wife or something, he drives off and just, they drive off, and he's standing on the corner, a little bit sheepish, a little bit embarrassed, and he holds up one of those signs, you know, and I was thinking... I've never seen how like a person kickstarts this whole gig, you know, I had never seen this before. I went to the bank and I came back and, you know, I just read his sign. I was about four or five cars away and this guy just was holding up a sign. He looked kind of um, like he'd seen better days, you know, um, not the happiest person on the planet. He was holding up a sign that said, you know, just laid off, family of four, need some food. And, you know, my heart just started breaking. I'm going, you know, how humbling is that that you're standing on the corner at Christmas time uh, saying I got laid off and I could really use some money for my family. And, you know, I was like, I don't know. He's probably not doing drugs. I don't know for sure. But I just, I knew I had a $5 bill in my wallet that was Christmas money from something. And I'm like, you know, I'm just pull this out. I got his attention a few cars away. And the guy came running. And I hold up a five and give it to him. And he just lights up. And I just went on my way. And I cried for like, you know, on and off the next 15, 20 minutes. You know, this guy is just trying to help his family out. Five bucks, lights them up. How hardened have I been? How hardened have you been to people standing on the corner? Something to reevaluate. I just think, boy, Jesus, what's your heart on this? You know, um, I just think we might, we might be able to grow in that. We want to work with our roommates and our friends and family. There's another people group we might think about do we really have this heart for. There's a great case against them, I'm sure. But let's move on to this next section here. Um, you guys have your Bibles, we'll keep reading in verse, uh, verse 4, verse 4 through 19. Here we go here. Um, let's see, there we go. All right, 4 through 19. It says, um, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. A large crowd from Galilee followed. They heard all he was doing. Many people came from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. Um, because because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. When the evil spirits saw him, when the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, "You are the Son of God!" But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Um, goes on the next section here. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them as apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Philip, I mean Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So this is Jesus um, calling his disciples. So we're going to take a brief look at this. Really two, two things we want to draw out of this section here. Um, let's see here. What have we got? There we go. Who, 
who did Jesus choose here? Let's take a look at who Jesus chose. Maybe we can just run through this list really quickly here. Um, we kind of see see who Jesus chose here. One second. So we've got, uh, well, you know, a couple interesting things. There's, uh, there's Peter and there's Andrew. Peter's listed first. Then uh, what do we have? James and John. And then Andrew. Now, James and John are obviously brothers here. Peter and Andrew, brothers. Um, Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is also known as Nathaniel from uh, John chapter 1. You'll see that. Uh, I don't know if he's got a, a nickname or another name here. seems like they're either friends. Some might speculate if they were cousins or something like that. So you got two brothers, a set of cousins, um, potentially. Who else do we have here? Um, We've got Matthew. Matthew was the tax collector, right? Um, the Roman IRS. We've got Thomas, good old doubting Thomas. We've got James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. You know, in other listings like Acts chapter 1 um, and other places, you'll see there's James. And then Acts chapter 1 says that uh, there's this guy named, uh, let's see, it's, it's Simon, the son of James. Um, and so the same... Same as one and the same with Thaddeus here. There's a father-son combo in the disciples. I don't know if you knew that. Interesting to think about. There's Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot is the guy that you know is part of the political organization that wanted to kick the Romans out and re you know restart the the nation of Israel the right way. It might be a modern day Simon the Tea Party guy. You know something like that. Um, he was in the bunch. And then there's Judas Iscariot. But as you look at this group of people. What stands out to you about them, about their credentials? Goobers. Or you might say nothing, you know. Nothing stands out. You know, they're fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, goobers, yeah. Um, So who did Jesus choose to follow them? Well, it seems like he chose some, kind of some underdogs here, some, some ordinary, humble people, you know. I think about Peter, he changed his name right off the bat. I'm not calling you Simon anymore, let's call you Peter. It's probably a better name, you know, rock versus whatever Simon means. Uh, like James and John, he immediately turns them into, you guys are now sons of thunder, you know. Um, they, they weren't called the sons of thunder before they started. He changed them into the sons of thunder. You know, I was trying to think through different names of people in this group here and who are who are brothers in this room that are trying to follow Jesus? Um, we've got we've got a number of them. I, I know there's some uh, some Swanson brothers. There's some uh, Macintosh brothers. We got a couple of them. We have got some Kavanaugh brothers right here. Um, who else we got? We got some Bronze brothers. That's kind of like Sons of Thunder right off the bat. But um, in this room right now, we have a group of brothers that's probably a greater number than than any other group. I think we have. Five whip brothers in the room right now. Is that right, Alan? You got some brothers here. That's like you know, if two of them were sons of thunder, what do you call five whip brothers? You know, I don't know, but it'd be a lot more than thunder, I think. Um, thunder, lightning, and then some. Um, but anyways, he just called these guys that were their credentials. They weren't the highly educated ones. They weren't the. Uh, they were fishermen. They're you know compromised tax collectors. They were um, just this kind of humble, ordinary bunch of people. And, you know, I just, uh, I think there's a lesson to learn from that. It's just, uh, who did he call? He, he, he chose humble, ordinary people. Um, you know, there's a verse I'll read real quick. You might know this verse in um, Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians here. Let's see. What did I put down? First Corinthians 2. Um, First Corinthians 
1, actually at the end of it, 1, 26, it says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised to nullify the things that are so that no man, no one may boast before him. You know, God chooses the underdogs. The one thing we have to be aware of is... Um, I don't know, are, are you an ordinary person? Are you humble? Are you ordinary? Because we do have to watch out for for being overqualified, you know? Sometimes we come to the table and go, man, I've got my credentials, I've got my resume, I've got my portfolio, I've got my education, I've got my, you know, I have ministry experience, whether it's worship or small group, or I've got all these credentials. You know what? You might be a little overqualified for Jesus to use you. Because, uh, you know, he's looking for the ordinary, the humble people. Once you get a little experience, a little wisdom under your belt, uh, you, we all have the danger of becoming like Saul. You know, I think of the words of Saul. He started off one of those goobers. He was hiding in the luggage, seven feet tall, and he's going to be king. And they said they found him hiding in the luggage, you know. And he, he got a good, humble start. But what happened after he became king for a while? He got a little proud. He didn't want to obey what God wanted him to do. He wanted to kill the rival who was going to be king next. But these words are ones that we ought to take to heart here ourselves. This is 1 Samuel 15, 17. And Saul, uh, Samuel is talking to Saul. And this is what he said to Saul at one point. To kind of rebuke him, he said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? You and I have to be careful. There may have been a time you first started in the ministry and you were small in your own eyes. And God used you greatly because He gives grace to the humble. But maybe you've got some experience. Maybe you've got some things under your belt. Maybe you've got a good resume. And the Lord might say to you, Remember when you were once small in your eyes and I began to use you? We need to make sure we are not overqualified to be used by God to be following Jesus here. Because... Uh, Sometimes I think we, we kind of get puffed up about that and I think He gives grace to the humble. Just because you were once humble, just because I was once humble doesn't mean we're always humble. He had Saul take a break for the rest of his life because he got proud in his own eyes. He started off small in his own eyes. How are you doing? You think God ought to use you? You think you're qualified? You think you're better than someone else? You'd be careful. You're going to be put on the bench here, you know. And the same is true for me. The same is true for each one of us. We want to be humble. We want to be the, the ones that are weak and need His strength to pull it off here. And so, just just beware of being overqualified. Beware of being underqualified and thinking, you're, woe is me, I'm too terrible for God to use me. And, you know, let me just mope about it and get people's compassion and pity and pity party. And you can be underqualified too, thinking that you're too big of a problem for little old God, God to use you. You know, we've got to watch out for that one as well. But... Um, Let's see here. The other thing is, why did Jesus, what, what did he want to call them for? What was his intention here? Um, what did he choose them for? Well, there's a couple things it says real clearly here. It says, um, it says that he chose them to be with him. To be with him. Out of all the Gospels, when he's calling the disciples, one says he fasted and prayed overnight and then he chose them. But that's not this Gospel. This Gospel just says... Uh, where no other one says it. It says, He called these guys to be with Him. He wanted these guys to tag along with Him to catch this way of life. 
Following Jesus Christ, being a disciple is a way of life. It's not just something you sit down in the classroom and learn. It's a way of life. It must be imparted from life to life. And he called them to be with him. Are you spending much time with him lately? Or are you doing all these different things for him? Because he, he greatly uses those who spend time with him. He called them to be with him. Um, he called them to take on his mission. Basically he said, I want you to be with me. I'm going to teach you how to proclaim the good news. You know, because it says that um, to be with them so that they could go preach, that, that he could send them out to preach. He also called them to be with them so they could catch, so that they could catch the confidence and authority that they should have in carrying out this mission. So we need to make sure we're men and women who um, are spending time with Jesus in such a way that we catch his mission to get the good news out and to do that with authority. And with confidence. At one point, they looked, uh, the Pharisees and people looked at Peter and John and they were being bold and they were preaching the gospel. And, and they said, you know, um, they said they looked at them, saw their confidence, their courage, and they realized these men had been with Jesus. You know, and so I think we all just need to be, um, God uses people that are um, humble and ordinary, people who have been with Jesus, to do extraordinary things. And we want to be disciples like that. Let's move on to this next section here. Cruise through this one here. Um, So, chapter 2, sorry, I lost my page here. So this section is, um, you know, real real light and easy reading here, this next one here. Um, Jesus and Beelzebub uh, starts verse 20 here. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, uh, they went in to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Um, Then the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So that's a, whew, that's a mouthful there. Um, the first part there maybe starts off a little more light-hearted. His, his family's just thinking, you know, this guy's crazy. His, his mom's thinking he's, law, he's off his rocker. His brothers and sisters are thinking... You know who is this guy? Now, uh, can you imagine for a moment? Any of you who have any of you have siblings? Any of you have a mom? Um, uh, hopefully, um, but um, you know, can you imagine if your sibling one day says, or, or your child, if you have kids, uh, imagine they just one day start saying, you know what? I think I'm the Messiah. I think I'm God's gift to this world. You know, maybe you have a sibling like that right now. Um, <laughs> You know, but wouldn't what would you think about them? You'd probably think they're crazy, um, right? I mean, that's not uncommon. Now, your siblings are probably not going to back that claim with the miracles like this. You know, if they're an older brother, they might back it with a good punch in the arm or something, but they're not going to prove they're the Messiah. Um, but anyway, so, so, you know, he's making this claim. These guys are going, 
my son is crazy, my, my brother is crazy, so they went to go get him. But, uh, but they took it up a notch here. These scribes came down and they said, he's not only crazy, this guy's possessed. This guy is possessed. And the reason he can kick out demons is because he's, he's running with the demons. You know, it's like uh, he, he's in with them and therefore he can kind of you know, manipulate them to do things to make it look like he's actually kicking them out. And, you know, and Jesus shared some things, spoke right into the middle of that. But um, he talked about, you know, he ends up saying uh, in the context of this that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an, of an eternal sin. And just wanted to make a couple points on that just to think about. You know, sometimes people, um, you get to a confusing place like that. So is this an unforgivable sin? What is blasphemy of the Spirit? I think that's the first thing we start with here. Um, and, you know, so have I committed it or has someone else committed it? Or, you know, then we start asking all sorts of questions. But just a few thoughts on understanding the Scriptures in general. One, we need to understand it in its context. What's going on right there that this thing is related to? Um, obviously, they were speaking against Jesus and what He was doing. And He said, you know, hey, there's things you'll be forgiven for, but watch out for blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Another thing you can use to understand hard passages is... Use the Scriptures. You've probably heard the phrase, let the Scripture interpret the Scripture. You look for other places. Where is something else like this said? And this is actually mentioned. There's parallel passages on, on this passage here in Mark, uh, no, Matthew 12 and Luke 12. They talk about this whole being accused of being possessed and stuff like that. Um, and so you can use that as well. Another thing you use is you uh, interpret hard-to-read passages, hard-to-understand, obscure passages should always be interpreted in light of clear passages. You don't look at something obscure and go, you know, let me take a few more obscure verses and, and next thing you know... You know, you get some doctrine that relates, you know, that's Jehovah Witness doctrine or uh, Mormon doctrine or, you know, David Koresh doctrine. And you, you just go some funny places when you start with an obscure verse and you use other ones to clarify that. But when you look at this, um, you know, he's talking about things related to forgiveness. Well, there's a whole bunch of verses in the New Testament about forgiveness and about how to get forgiveness. Um, and it's over and over again. It's a very, very clear thing that you find forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that's reiterated many times. So, so when you start to look at these things in light of some of this other stuff, it hopefully clarifies a little bit. I think it's a Matthew 12. We can look at just real quickly here. There's, you know, I think there's a phrase or two that uh, helps shed light on this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, Let's see here. So this uh, 12 and verse 30, it just says, um, Jesus is speaking. He says, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, men. But blasphemy against the, Holy Spirit, against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so at the first glance, you go, hey, they're talking against Jesus and the, the Spirit doing miracles or something. But you look here at Matthew and he's saying, hey, look, you may say this stuff about me. We use a friendly word there. Um, you may say this about me and you'll be forgiven. But when the Holy Spirit comes and you start speaking against, resisting uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, beware of coming into something that will be unforgivable. Beware of being one who will never be forgiven. What do we know throughout the Scriptures? The way to be forgiven is to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit said um, that the Spirit will do when 
Jesus said, when the Spirit comes. A few things. It will glorify Jesus. The Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus. The Holy Spirit will convict about um, the judgment that's coming and unrighteousness and things like that. But for the work of the Holy Spirit is basically to tell people Jesus is the way to get your sins forgiven. And if a person resists the Holy Spirit and resists the work of the Holy Spirit, well, how's the only way to get your sins unforgiven? It's to live a life blaspheming, resisting, speaking against the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the one way to be unforgiven when it's all settled. And, and we need to catch that. You know, some people have some funny ideas about what it means, what it doesn't. It even uses here in Matthew, it uses the future tense. Um, if someone will speak against the Holy Spirit, this will be the case. And Jesus is saying, you can speak against the Son of Man. I'm here to die on the cross, to rise again, to, to prepare the way. But the Holy Spirit's going to testify about it. And you resist the Spirit and you resist the Spirit. Watch out that you don't find yourself unforgiven. Um, and so we, we, you know, we have to be careful on some of these things. But, you know, I saw something on campus a while back here that was, uh, I don't know, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. We're out at a, a campus fair. Uh, they have all the student organizations. And it happened to coincide. The atheist group sponsored a thing. You might have heard of it before. It's called uh, the Blasphemy Challenge. And uh, you know what they, they were doing right here before my very eyes is that they would have people come to their booth. They had a video. And you had a chance to speak blasphemy against Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and try to renounce the Holy Spirit in such a way that you qualified for being unforgiven, for committing the unpardonable sin. And there's websites out there uh, that just has people recording this. And it's just, I watched it for a little bit, it's just disturbing. You know, um, there's people, I saw this one young girl that was saying, you know, I deny the Holy Spirit and all these things. And then she ends her whole spiel by saying, see you in hell. And, and there's just one after the other after the other. People in Denver, people on the Auraria campus trying to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's just grieving. You know, when I watch these videos, there's a Nightline episode on this whole thing. A lot of times they try to do some marketing, website marketing into the, the youth, into the high school world. Things that uh, they visit in their, um, you know, in the high school or, you know, that culture, websites they go to and things. These guys were marketing, getting to this Blasphemy Challenge website so they could begin, you know, getting reasonable, you know, and getting comfortable with the idea there's no heaven and hell so that they could blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And it's just grieving. But when I was watching, I got a little fired up. I, I wanted to go like, you know, let me get a hold of this guy that started that website. And uh, But, uh, you know, we have to be careful in that, you know, because that's just disturbing. Um, and we can get mad about it. But if you're interacting with an atheist who's doing this dumb stuff, do you think mad's going to help them at all? You know, what would Jesus do? I think Jesus showed us when he was coming into Jerusalem, he knew they'd reject him, speak against him, they're going to murder him. And it said on his way into Jerusalem, he wept. He wept for them. We need to get sad. We need to get not mad and argue with these guys. I don't know anyone who you know, lost an argument and they decided, yeah, I guess I should follow Jesus. Um, but there's a number of people who got hit in the heart and realized they needed a Savior. And that just the heart behind trying to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is a wicked thing. And we're the people that need to get out there and help these. You know, Jesus went on to say, one of the action points I come away with is, um, he said this, you know, um, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. You know what he's saying there? You can't set people free from the power of Satan unless you've bound up Satan first. And then you start casting out his demons. He was saying, hey, look, 
I'm taking care of him because he has got plunder. He's got my plunder. The souls of men and women are in captivity under Satan's power, Satan's rule. And you know what? Jesus wants to bind them up so that we can take that plunder back. And that's our mission, men and women. Some people don't even realize that they're headed to hell and they can, you know, think it's flippant and foolish and funny on the blasphemy challenge. And, and they don't realize there's going to be a time where there really will be weeping. There really will be wailing and gnashing of teeth and a dread that never goes away. And they don't realize that they're ignorant, but we know that. And our mission is to go and help set these people free. And we've got to have the heart for that, you know. And we've got to know that this is the mission. You know, the firehouse, we say love, rescue, and transform. Our mission is to rescue this lost world with Christ. And we've got to be getting after it. Even if they're saying dumb, provocative things, don't go looking for an argument. Look for a way to get to their heart and uh, share this good news in love. And maybe they'll reject it still, but let it be over us trying and trying and trying again to get them this rescue message, this rescue line, you know. So um, we're on a rescue mission, I think. Uh, make, sure, make sure you're on that mission. If you check any of these websites, which I don't necessarily encourage you to, uh, you watch it for a minute or so, you'll get the picture. Hopefully it'll break your heart. And let's get out there and set some people free, some captives free from, from the devil's world. You know, there's a verse like this, and I don't know that I included in here or not, but uh, I did. Um, did we pass up that verse in Isaiah here? Can I go backwards? Or maybe it didn't make it in. Is that it there? Yeah. This is, you know, Jesus actually, I think he was referring to this verse in Isaiah when he spoke about binding the strong man. It just says this, Can the prey be taken from the mighty man, or captives of a tyrant be rescued? Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. Men and women, that's Jesus is saying, Hey, look, you're going to follow me? You've been given a rescue, a rescue mission. We've got to get after it. We've got to catch the heart that Jesus had for reaching the lost here. Um, and the last thing, we're just going to close with just reading this passage so that Brad can start chapter 4 um, with a clear conscience. So uh, let's read here verse 31 through 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. Uh, sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, "Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you." Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother." You know, and there's plenty of things we could probably come away with from that. Um, I think I've you know, just got a couple here things to think of. Oops, I got that one. Yeah. You know, I just think of this idea. You've probably heard this phrase before. Anyone ever heard this? Blood is thicker than water. Um, I think it's probably true. You know, if you put a little blood in a vial and water and, you know, examine them, I think blood is thicker. It's, it's chemically true. Um, but obviously the point is, you know, biologically, a family is closer than those who are not family, right? I mean, that's, that's the idea. A few things just to take note of here. I think Jesus was respectful with his mother, but she knew her place in regards to him and his relationship with his heavenly father. And there was no confusion ever when he interacted with her that he worshipped her, that he thought of her as a parallel, you know, the mother of God. Uh, that's not the case at all. Jesus was respectful to her and, and he also sometimes lovingly put her in place and said, you know, I've got to be about my father's business. 
And when she called him out, you know, he could have come running and gone, yeah, my mom's calling, i got to go. But he said, she was still outside. And he's saying, right here, it's these people doing God's will. They're really my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Um, and so we have to watch out. You know, obviously there's religions out there that elevate Mary to some sort of, you should pray to her. She's one part of the Trinity. Um, some would even make the case that she is, uh, she's been a perpetual virgin. You know, there's a virgin birth, which we all believe that, and it's from the scriptures. But they say she never had any sexual activity after that and, and therefore is a part of her holiness and why she should be worshipped. But what do we know? Well, she brought the brothers. She brought the brothers. How do you get brothers? You have babies. You know, she, Jesus had brothers, half-brothers, through Mary, uh, James and Jude. Um, some would even say he had sisters. But, uh, you know, she... Hard to be a perpetual virgin if you had kids, you know. Um, but anyways, we all know that. But, um, but the point here that he goes on to say is, you know, hey, it's, um, it's more important uh, doing the will of God. You know, I think sometimes we get the idea that, hey, if you're born, how do you become a family member? You're born into a family, right? How do you unbecome a family member? You can't, right? You, know, I, I don't know, maybe die. That's probably a possibility. That's that's sad, morbid, but thank you, yeah. <laughs> Alan. Thanks for sharing that. Um, but, no, um, but you really, when you become a part of a family, you don't undo that. You can say you're not part of my family anymore, but that doesn't change anything, right? But you know that we also there's a trap there. I think that becomes true of Christian identity. Sometimes we say I've been born again, so it doesn't matter what I do. You're my brother and sister in Christ. I'm headed to heaven to be with my Father. But you know Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said. You know, here's how you can tell if you're my mother or brothers or sisters. Not by the fact that you've been born again. He does say you have to be born again. But how do you prove that you've been born again? By what you do. And he said, hey look, here's my siblings, those that are doing God's will. It's not just about being. Oh yeah, I was born again and, and I don't have to do anything to be in the family of God. I never have, I never will. They may or may not be showing up in heaven with that sort of thinking. But Jesus said, here's the deal. You can tell a, a tree by its fruit. You can tell what's going on in your heart and your faith by how you live. And he said, these are my brothers and sisters. And I was going to close with a, a haiku, but uh, I don't know if I should. I think we're really running out of time here. So uh, maybe we, uh, we could save it for the firehouse still. Maybe, I mean, for the coffee house. But I don't know if I'll be there. So... Um, <laughs> Maybe I'll share a haiku. You know, I've done a few haikus just for fun. Um, haikus are very silly. I know I did a project back in the third grade where they taught you how to do these poems. Uh, I, say it's, I say it's poetry for engineers. You know, it's all about like counting and it doesn't have to do with rhyme and rhythm or any musical skills whatsoever. Um, I think, do I have my haiku here? Should I do it or should we just pray? Let's do it. All right, we'll do it. Talk me into it. This is going to be in, in my book of haikus at some point. Okay, I'm going too fast here. Oh, back up. All right. Well, um, so five syllables, seven syllables, five. Can I give you a haiku real quick that's about haikus, just so you know what we're doing? Um, this is just silly, but I, it's fun. You know, um, haikus are, are the dumbest thing ever, but, you know, what does that say about me? I don't know. But uh, anyways, uh, so there's one haiku. I just uh, called this one haikus. This is like going to be in my book someday. I've got three haikus so far, I think. But uh, this is called haikus, and it goes like this. It says, uh, you know, um, count 
575. All about rhythm, not rhyme, but such a good time. 575. Five. They're all about, you have five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. Another one that uh, I think was possibly inspired by God um, out of all the ones, it was related to a series we did on faith, but um, I don't know what we call it. Mountains Get Nervous might be what it, it was entitled, but it goes, uh, Your faith in Jesus. Power from God, power, power from God unleashes mountains get nervous. Um, okay, you know, please, please laugh if you don't mind. Um, this last one here, silly but fun, haikus, you know, don't try this at home unless you got a really gracious family. Um, last one, blood is thicker than... Water, yet doing God's, yet water, yet doing God's will, even thicker still. You know, um, we just want to be. Oh, I'm sorry. You asked for it. You might never ask for that again. Um, but anyway, thanks for clapping. Um, we'll go ahead and pray here. But you know, the point is that. Maybe blood thicker than water, but uh, obedience to God's will is thicker than all of that. And that's what we want to be a family, doing God's will together here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, again, we just, we just thank you for this Gospel of Mark. We thank you that through the Gospel of Mark, it gives us insight into you, into your heart. God, I pray you'd make us men and women who have a heart of compassion. God, help us not to be men and women who are judging others who are hardening our hearts towards others and not helping them, whether they're hungry or in need. God, I pray that you would help us to be humble and usable by you, regardless of our past, that we'd be humble today um, and usable today. God, I pray that you'd help us to set free the, the plunder, the captive souls that the devil has that, that are ultimately yours, God, and, and help us to win them to you through your love and through the gospel. God, I pray you would make us a family here of men and women, who do your will in our family by your definition, um, not just by birth, but proved by being one who does the will of our Father. God, we just thank you for this time. Help these words of yours to sink into our hearts. Make us more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks a lot, you guys. We'll see you at uh, Coffee Houses next week, and then Brad will do Chapter 4 next Sunday.